Welcome to The Signal, a podcast presented to you by Third Bridge, the world's leading investment research provider, exploring how some of the world's most investable industries are facing upheaval. My name is Catherine Ford, and I'm a journalist with a 20-year track record of reporting on a wide range of financial topics, such as capital markets developments and M&A. In this episode of The Signal, we're going to explore how the rise of the conscious consumer is disrupting the US alcohol industry. Joining me today are Alex Smith, Third Bridge's Global Team Leader for Consumer, and Matt Brune, Chief Executive of Craft Standard, a US-based draft cocktail solution. Hello to both of you. Thank you so much for joining me for what I'm sure is going to be a really fun conversation. But before we get stuck in, can I ask you to introduce yourselves to the audience just in a few words? Alex, maybe you start off. Yep, sure. My name is Alex Smith. I'm the Global Lead for Consumer at Third Bridge. Prior to Third Bridge, I spent over 15 years as a sell-side analyst for a number of investment banks in London. My focus was very much on global consumer staples companies across packaged food, home personal care, and the beer and spirits industry. Super. Thank you so much. And also, we've got Matt joining us today. Matt, tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Well, I've been in the beverage industry uh, for about 16 years, collectively. I spent 12 years with uh, Diageo, uh, the global premium spirits business around the world, Australia, Asia, and then finally in the US. Uh, After the stint at Diageo, I moved into the beer sector, where I was the general manager and president of the Paps Brewing Company, which is um, the largest independently owned brewery in America. Fantastic. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for taking the time to talk to me this afternoon. So over the next 45 minutes, I'd like to get a real deep dive into the US alcohol beverages industry and get a sense for what we're seeing there. And um, I'd like to kick off the conversation with a bit of an overview, um, setting the scene of what the space actually looks like. So Alex, maybe you can come to us first of all and talk a little bit about why the US is such a focus for us on this podcast, and then also give me some facts and figures uh, and who the key players are in the space. Sure. Maybe to put the US into context, the global alcohol market, um, it's hard to cut a number on this, but I I hear figures of up to around a trillion dollars. But if we take Chinese white spirits out of the equation, then the US market is by far the largest market. And I hear numbers around uh, $220 billion. If we focus in a little bit more on on spirits, about uh, somewhere in the high 30s percentage-wise of that market is, is now spirits. Um, but importantly for spirits in the US, it is a very profitable spirits market. Um, it is the most profitable spirits market at scale. It's also a very premium market if you compare that profitability and premium positioning compared to Europe, for example. It's also a very dynamic market. It tends to set a lot of the consumer behavioral trends that then eventually find themselves uh, traveling around the world. Just to put a little bit of context around that, to to illustrate how important the US market is, at least for spirits, if you look at Diageo, which is the largest Western-style spirits company in the world, um, it's a global business, but around 40% of its sales come from the US, and around just under half of its profits come from the US. Matt, can you talk to us about some of the key players in this space? Yeah, so from the um, the beer side, you've got Anheuser-Busch, Molson Coors, the Rising Star Constellation, 
Um, then you have the kind of newer entrance, which is Boston with the um, advent of Truly, Mike's off the back of White Claw. And then you've got recent developments of Monster Energy taking an acquisition of Kaneki, the craft uh, group, which is entering into the market. Um, outside that, you've got Gallo emerging. It's an interesting one. It's a wine and spirits got, uh, producer, but they've now got High Noon, which is growing at a, at a rapid rate. So that's the beer side. You've got below that, Paps, Yingling. You've got a litany of kind of lower side, um, smaller beer players. You've got Heineken in there as well. Diageo factors on the beer side there a little bit with Guinness. Um, and then you've got thousands of craft breweries below that. On the spirit side, you've got all the multinationals operating in the US, Diageo, Perno, Campari, William Grants, all operating, Proximo, um, Jim Beam, all operating um, standalone um, businesses within the US. Okay. When Alex and I had a conversation about this podcast earlier on in the week, we spoke about what I quizzed him about, you know, what does the average consumer in the space look like? And Alex just said, well, it's anyone has a drinking age, really. So rather than talk to me about sort of the, the average consumer, talk to me about who are the influential consumers in the space and what do their consumption patterns look like at the moment, Alex? It's very much the millennial cohort that are driving the trends that we're, we're probably going to talk a little bit more about. Um, but what you find is younger consumers are tending to reject the, the brands that their parents or even their grandparents would drink. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more experimental, um, a little bit more promiscuous, uh, less brand loyal. Um, but a common theme you will have heard probably is younger consumers tend to drink less, um, but they are very much prepared to spend more on, on that drink. Elder generations, the boomers... Um, they're, of course, still drinking, but the, the categories and brands that they're drinking have changed too over the last 10 years or so. Very different to what we saw in Mad Men, for example, if anyone's seen that particular program. But those boomer habits changing very much, if anything, on the back of the influence of the millennial generation. Great. Thank you very much. Matt, do you want to add something to that, thinking about sort of your, the influential consumer in the space? Yeah. I'm not, I don't want to disagree with Alex because... Maybe that's not fair, but um, I think we're starting to see the millennial influence start to um, peter out. You know, if you look at White Claw, truly, that wasn't driven by millennials. That was driven by certainly the younger end of the market. And now you're seeing tequila, mezcal, these new spirit brands also be driven by the inner city urban dwelling cocktail curious group. So we're starting to see millennials kind of still impact the market because they are the largest cohort, but that those subsequent generations are starting to lean in. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Can you guys talk to me a little about how the uh, how the pandemic has impacted the space, how consumption patterns have changed, how what people are consuming has changed? Alex, maybe you can kick us off there. Well, when consumers couldn't get to bars, rather than reverting to drinking at home like they used to drink at home, they really tried to uh, bring the bar to their home. So they started buying more expensive spirits speaking from a spirits perspective, making more complex uh, spirits cocktails at home. And of course, drinking at home is, is, um, is much cheaper. So if you're used to going out and spending $15, $16 on a cocktail in a bar, you can probably treat yourself a little bit more at home now in the pandemic. And that led to, to consumers trying new things. So a, a cons consumer might have gone to a bar in the past and seen a $50 cocktail shot but thought I'm not paying that but when they in this situation at lockdown 
They might think, actually, I'm going to go and try that drink because I can get it for $125 in retail and drink 20 shots of that at home. Um, so really what the, the pandemic brought was a significant amount of premiumization to drinking at home. And Matt, have you seen that as well on the beer side of things? What the um, pandemic did was obviously, as Alex said, force people to home consumption. We saw that push craft beer, you know, kind of boutique craft beer pretty heavily through the pandemic. Um, as people premiumized, as they kind of got the opportunity to drink at a lower price at home. So there's similar similar correlation there. But post-pandemic, as the, the floodgates opened and on-premise re-emerged, people, people's behaviours flipped back very quickly. It was quite interesting to watch and the belief that some behaviours would stick pretty fundamentally. A lot of those were pretty elastic and went back pretty quickly. Craft beer went very poorly, started to decline. Flavoured malt beverage went back into to decline after it kind of grew dramatically through COVID. So we're starting to see the return to very, um, what I would say, long cultural trends. And I think the long cultural trends always eventually emerge to take over those fast cultural trends. So on the beer side, we're starting to see going back very quickly to what was happening pre-pandemic. Thank you very much. Alex, maybe from a spirit's point of view, you talked about how during the pandemic people were treating themselves to a higher quality of product at home than they would have maybe consumed in a bar. Can you give us a little bit more colour on that one? Well, I think premiumization is across alcohol has been the driver of value growth across all categories for many, many years. And just to give an illustration, if, if you look at spirits in retail, any bottle above $30 is growing pretty quickly. Uh, on the flip side, a lower price bottle, a value bottle at around 15 is that, that category is probably in, in actual volume decline. And I guess if you look at, at, at spirits, every category is growing differently, but what is unanimous is the premium end of that category is growing more quickly than the value end. And to bring an analogy into it, if you look at the rum category, rum has been pretty stagnant as a big category in the US, pretty stagnant for, for many, many years because it's over-indexed to mainstream. I'm thinking of brands like Captain Morgan, like Bacardi. Uh, but what you've seen of late are much more premium entrants like Zacapa from Diageo. And, and this is really now beginning to bring a little bit of life back to the rum category. Talking about those premium brands, how much of an impact is the cost of living crisis having on those kind of products? Because I would imagine if people are having to tighten their belts fundamentally, they are they not going to be turning to those lower end and, and, and cheaper products rather than the high end ones? We saw this a little in the, the credit crunch crisis in 08. Um, what people tended to do was defer big purchases through high inflationary periods. So the highest inflation in the US is, is cars, travel. So you don't buy the new car. You don't upgrade the house. You don't go on that trip. But if you're at the local store and it's four or five bucks between something that's okay and something that's nice, but you deferred that big purchase, then, yeah, okay, let's do that. Like I think, I think we've got to go micro when we think about the macroeconomic headwinds. And people tend to put off big things and then treat themselves in the little things. Coca-Cola branded Coke tends to do better during a downturn, when people go, well, I won't buy generic, I'll trade up a little bit. It's only an extra dollar. So we've got to be a little careful not to assume that these macro headwinds will end up impacting alcohol because the inverse was true 
um, during the during the credit crunch for sure. Thanks, Matt. Can you also talk to us, Matt, about um, sort of the impact of premium products in the beer category? Yeah. So having done a very long stint in spirits and then a short-ish stint in beer, I, it kind of never fails to kind of amuse me about how many ways the spirits companies have to demonstrate value, age, provenance, bottle shape, um, distillation method, maturation method, location like the ability for you to kind of show value in spirits is infinite right talk about zacapa for a minute you know um solera aged in cognac barrels above the sky in guatemala okay i'm paying 60 100 bucks for that (laughs) like are you kidding me like 12 year old scotch laid down 12 years ago in the highland or from a single cast particularly handcrafted by one individual like the romanticy of spirits is is incredible and that's why it captures people's attention beer beer's beer you know and and the industry got enamored by craft beer but ipa is awful like it suits one single strain of consumer behavior and it's not particularly romantic. There's only so many ways you can ferment yeast and stick it in a can and pretend it's going to be like better. Um, so the beer industry has very little mechanism by which to premiumize people. Now, people are premiumizing beer. They're going out of, you know, sub-premium, Bud Light and moving to Michelob Ultra. But what's Michelob Ultra trading on? One primary benefit, 95 calories. It's a, it's a reductive premiumization. And so the the beer industry, whilst it is premiumizing, doesn't have the same infinite possibilities of coercing and convincing consumers. And that's why you see this litany of innovation in beer, which is really completely confusing. Like Bud Light comes out with Bud Light Next, a depositioning product of their their primary product. It's basically saying what you currently drink is, is for yesterday and this one's for tomorrow. And the only benefit was was a reduction in calorific and carbs. It's, so yeah, there's some willingness for big people to trade up, but to what, you know? And yet we are seeing this move away from beer at the moment, aren't we? Yeah. And and is is that because there is no you know romantic, exciting story? I love the the analogy that you drew there about you know the handcrafted casket that has been made by one single person from the same family over the last. 50 years. I mean, that is such a, such a beautiful story to keep in your mind as you're having your glass of whiskey or whatever it is. With beer, what is, what is keeping people consuming beer, but why are they also moving away, Matt? There's a lot of stuff wrapped up in here. Let's start at the, at the cultural level because, you know, long culture is important here. Like individualism is shaping the world versus group behavior. If you go back to the 90s, everyone drank or connected with everyone else. And there was a group acceptance. Like you drank what your brother drank, what your old man drank. There was a real grandfathering in of behaviors, drinking behaviors. It was a rite of passage behind having your first beer in my country at 18, in this country, 21, in the UK, I think it's 18 as well, right? There was a certain guaranteed beer behavior being manifest generational to generational. Well, that got blown up, right? Individualism is is now on the rise. And then you've got this explosion of incredibly cool spirits and cocktails and ready-to-drink cans. And so now I just get experimentation. And once people experiment outside of the beer category, what they unfortunately find 
is beer isn't that tasty, especially for younger people. Like if you're if you're 18 or 19 in Australia or UK or 21 here, just straight up and down, the taste of a cocktail wins nine out of ten times over a, a beer. So beer has this now kind of vexing issue of not guaranteed next generational consumption and then fighting to try and find liquids that that fight against the spirits industry. And that's why, to go to the kind of segue, why beer companies are trying to be total egg total alcohol beverage businesses and spirits companies aren't because one's got a tailwind and one's got a headwind. I fear that we're upsetting lots of beer brewers with our podcast at the moment, but um, we'll, we'll take that. Well, I mean, they know it though, right? I worked in beer for, you know, for almost four years in this country and the beer, the beer country companies sit and they know it and they sit at their conferences and they, this is not new news to them, right? They all know it inside out and it's, but just knowing it is not always the answer. Sometimes you've got to know it and do something. And that's really hard, right? I'd like to move on for a second now to spend some time talking about another trend that we're seeing in the industry, low and no alcohol um, offerings that we're seeing. And I think we're seeing them in, in a variety of categories um, throughout alcoholic beverages. Um, Matt, do you want to uh, talk to us about some of the trends that you're seeing there and where they're coming from and what's fueling that movement? Yeah. I mean moderation or the, the the idea of moderation is is massively on the rise you know for many of us a little older our behaviors as as an early drinking age person were were held tightly within a group of small friends and you know for this generation your behaviors and actions at 21 are projected to the world via social media so there are consequences to our behaviors that we've never seen and you can just ask a few celebrities in America around the consequences of their behavior on social media. So this generation, this next generation, especially this completely digitally um, native generation, understand the consequences for um, their behaviors. So moderation is on the rise for, for a lot of social reasons, but also a lot of health reasons. They're also more in touch with the data or the understanding, the information that helps them understand um, the role of alcohol in their life and in their health. So moderation um, is certainly on the rise um, significantly. Um, and what that's done is, is created opportunities um, for better quality non-alc beer. You saw a $50 million transaction yesterday with Dr. Kirik and uh, Athletic Brewing. Athletic Brewing is the, the, the at the forefront of reinventing what non-alc beer looks like. Previously, non-alc beer was derivative or dilutive of an existing franchise. So it was Bud Light, non-alc, which was the worst version of Bud Light. What Athletic did was make non-alc beer it's what it is. So it's not less than something else. It is what it is in itself great. So you're seeing the rise of non-alc um, beer for sure, um, satisfying people who enjoy the taste of beer, slightly, usually slightly older, who have drunk it for some years, and now getting a really quality um, non-alc beer experience. So we're seeing that. Um, we're also seeing broadly massive opportunities for consumers to choose to, to moderate their alcohol consumption. A lot more non-alc um, sodas with real ingredients um, coming through that they can use instead of um, alcohol. And we're also seeing now with the increased acceptance and legalization of cannabinoids, CBD particularly because of the farm bill, 
We're seeing the rise of CBD beverages. Um, we're obviously seeing the rise of um, THC beverages in legalized states. So you're seeing the ability for consumers, again, in this individual estate to play around with how they combat and deal with stress without use, use of alcohol. So there's so many interconnecting trends here that help people reduce their consumption of alcohol. Okay. Thank you very much there, Matt. Um, Alex, did you want to add something from a spirits perspective when it comes to low or no alcohol offerings? Not only that, spirits is, is way behind the curve um, in terms of adoption. I'm not sure whether that they just couldn't find the right replication of a, a particular product or whether there was consumer demand on the spirits occasion. Um, but we're certainly getting there now. You've got a, you know, a scale brand in Seedlip um, owned by Diageo. I, th- I think the, the interesting thing is it, the non-alc spirits version is probably cannibalizing on a traditional spirits occasion. I, I don't think you're converting non-alcohol drinkers into an, an alcohol occasion. But the important thing, I think, from a, from a corporate perspective is um, you price your non-alcoholic version very similarly to the alcoholic version. So C-Lip will be priced as a premium gin, but you don't. the supplier, the manufacturer, doesn't have to pay tax on that. So spirit companies, I don't think, mind consumers moving away from a spirits drink to a, a non-alcoholic spirits drink as long as it's, it's theirs. Yeah, to undermine your point, Alex, on the size, the size of the marketplace. Non-alcoholic beer is an eighteen billion dollar category on a global level. Wine is six billion, and spirits is three hundred million. So, as a percentage of business, spirits is way behind in terms of um, of its consumption. It will be interesting to see what occasions are being moderated. I'm seeing wine particularly be, be hit in the US in terms of category decline. I'm curious if the wine occasion, especially for millennial women, um, is being retracted post-COVID um, and this non-alc, potentially non-alc beverages, spirits, et cetera, start to enter into that, um, that wine-based occasion as people look to moderate their, um, their wine consumption. Hi, my name is Erica Gomez and I'm an analyst at Thurbridge. If you'd like to know more about the subjects discussed today, our forum team have over 30,000 company and sector transcripts available on demand. They offer extensive insight into the U.S. tequila market, Renora Car, and the development of the U.S. alcohol e-commerce industry. Each transcript features a one-hour interview between an unbiased analyst like me and an industry executive. You can find this content at signal.thurbridge.com. And now back to the podcast. Now, Alex, I'd like to come and talk to you a little about a trend that we saw pre-pandemic, but has definitely picked up in speed post-pandemic, is the, the ready-to-drink cocktails. What can you tell us about, about that market development? I think you need to look at the ready-to-drink or RTD category holistically, because the explosion we've seen in the last three years has not been so much driven by ready-to-drink spirit-based cocktails, but by malt-based beverages, which is closer to the, the beer category, hard seltzers, in, in other words. Um, you know, Matt can probably speak more authoritatively about hard seltzers, but, you know, they are falling by the wayside, or at least they've, they peaked and ready to drink spirits cocktails are now beginning to, to mop up some of that, that category. I, I mean, if you use Australia as a benchmark, I think if I'm not mistaken, Matt, that's got a high penetration of ready to drink cocktails. Maybe that would be illustrative of where the US could get to, but, you know, consumers like it. It's easy consumption. It's, you don't have to mix things. It's that grab and go, go to a party. 
greater portability. The issue in the US is, uh, again, this comes down to a tax issue. You, the, the supplier has to pay a higher tax on ready-to-drink cocktails, whereas malt-based beverages or hard seltzers have an exemption. So that, that needs to somehow be unlocked for ready-to-drink cocktails to really explode. If they can get equivalency on tax, then um, I would expect, or I guess our experts that we talked to would expect the ready-to-drink cocktail, spirit-based cocktail um, occasion or format to, to take off. Matt, would you like to add something to that? So, yeah, I have plenty of experience from from Australia 20 years ago when the government did equalise tax. Um, it changed the bill uh, around 2000 and spirits-based RTDs tax was equal was equalised or close to equalised to beer and spirits-based RTDs absolutely exploded. So now if we talk about the US, the US regulatory environment, which is both taxation but also three-tier system, has held back spirits RTDs in America for 20 years. Access to marketplaces is weaker, i.e. you can't put it in every store in every state. And the system of delivery here is split. So obviously a manufacturer can't deliver direct to store. They have to go through the third, the, the, that, that middle tier. That middle tier was constructed um, and bifurcated very um, much post-prohibition. You have the beer distributor who delivers highly frequent deliveries, primarily focused on cold box, Beer. Okay. That is a system. There are a thousand distributors in America that just do beer and they do it by county, not by state, not by territory, by county. And those 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 contracts and positions have been in, in place since 1936. The spirits distributors, they do infrequent drops, they don't access the cold box, and they put it on the ambient shelf. So herein lies the problem on how to get your spirits RTD to market. You need it in the fridge because principally spirits RTD sell predominantly cold. So what, how do you get it to market? Do you put it, you know, Ciroc RTD through a spirits distributor will be impacted by in its inability for their distributor to access the cold box because Anheuser-Busch and Molson Coors controlled the cold box. But then if you put it in the, in the beer distributor, they don't understand spirits. And they really don't want spirits RTDs to, to really impact the beer category. So they held it back. They've, they've held it back for 20 years. But then came a long thing called White Claw and Truly that's, that's completely changed the game because now you have a product that's defined as beer because it's, it's brewed from corn, but it's meant to mimic a vodka and soda, which is what consumers want, but it goes through the beer network. And then suddenly it unlocks consumers to what they've been missing for the last 20 years and you get a 200 million case category emerge within three years. And now we've got Pandora swapped open because now consumers know what they've been missing. Now high noon is 20, 30 million cases, right? It's spirits-based. So now the beer companies, the beer industry, beer distributors are like, wait a minute, why were we holding this back? We can make a lot more money because these are a lot more expensive. Our margin enhancement is huge. We're talking about distributors making 2x margins on spirits RTDs versus beer RTDs. But Matt, the way that you're describing the industry, it sounds like an industry that is really ripe for disruption for someone else to come in with no association either direction, not into beer, not into spirits, just come into it as an entirely new product offering. Why hasn't that happened so far then? Uh, that seems like that seems like a, v a 
very large question. So, it, I mean, White Claw did. White Claw didn't exist. If you go back five years ago, it didn't exist, right? We, we're talking about White Claw and Truly, two brands that did not exist, actually a product category that did not exist five or six years ago, become um, a two or 300 million case category. In So they did completely disrupt the industry. Now we're going to see lots of additional, like High Noon is disrupting. It's High Noon is a, is a vodka-based, basically White Claw. You're going to see Topa Chico tequila launch. It's already been announced. So you're going to start to see big brands with spirits in them continue to disrupt that 3 billion cases of beer that sat there under attack, right? You don't have to be stealing much beer to get a, get a big category here, right? So I, I don't know if you're going to see, like, you're going to see lots of new brands attempt to crack it. Mountain Dew just launched, Mountain Dew Hard here from, from Pepsi. That's an insane concept. You've seen um, Coca-Cola launch their brands, Topo Chico, and um, their lemonade brand. You're going to see Pepsi add more brands to the market. You've seen Monster make an acquisition of a beer company. They're going to be launching, you know, Monster. I mean, they've launched Monster Hard as well, or their version of it. So you're going to see some pretty wild stuff come from the industry in the next four or five years as as the, the floodgates have opened to allow new format cans into the, into the marketplace. Okay. We're going to spend some time talking about diversification to gain market share in a minute, but e-commerce has exploded over the last 10 years and over the course of the pandemic, the importance of having an e-commerce offering has only grown even more. Talk to me about what we've seen in the alcohol space and why it has been comparatively slow to embrace e-commerce. Yeah. Direct-to-consumer alcohol is incredibly problematic to start with age verification at delivery. I mean, it's impossible right now to get, get drivers to make deliveries because every other category is exploding with, exploded with deliveries. You've got Uber. You've got everything delivering to your house. It's just how can you get a workforce? I mean, America runs it basically full unemployment. There's too many jobs and not enough people. So just pure delivery systems are hard to come by. And if you add age verification at the end point, you add costs through the roof, right? So economically, does it really make sense for anyone to do it? So that's that's what that's a big barrier. And second, traditionally speaking, um, beer has been a grab to grab 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 to consume. I'm not waiting around. I'm not pre-ordering my beer a week early. I'm going to the shops. I'm getting it cold and I'm taking it to a party. So beer is really not a planned purchase. It's still massively part of the trip or the destination for a shopper. So Walmart doesn't really want anyone not coming to the store. It's preferential. They get them in because they're going to sell them more. So they're not particularly interested in driving beer, beer direct to consumer. Thank you very much. Now, um, another trend that I picked up um, as as we were doing sort of research for this was uh, celebrity-owned brands and endorsements. There's a number of celebrities out there that have their own spirit brand, either that they've developed themselves or where they've associated themselves with a particular existing brand. Alex, talk to us about what we're seeing there and if we're going to see more of that. Yeah, for sure. As as you alluded to, I think celebs of some time now have been either investing behind brands, investing their own money behind brands or starting up brands. 
whether that's Sean Coombs with Ciroc, whether that's Kendall Jello with her 818 tequila. Um, I can only assume it's a way, a fun way for them to spend their cash and make more cash. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, the way to think about it is even before the pandemic, brand building and spirits was already moving away from investment in the bars, investment at big events. It was migrating to, to digital and online and online influencers. And if you have a celebrity digital influencer, um, that's really not probably going to hurt you. Um, tequila has been prolific in terms of celebrity support. And I guess it's a bit chicken and egg is the way I think about it. Celebrities want to be associated with a hot spirits category, um, but it's also celebrities that have contributed to uh, the growth of and, and the, the boom of the, the tequila segment within spirits. And again, this comes to tequila being a, a young category, being very online, very digital. And that's really what, what you've seen in terms of tequila. I think what's interesting, though, is a lot of these celebrity-supported brands, I, I assume they're going to continue to, to pop up, but they're increasingly landing in the, the laps or being acquired by the big um, spirits companies. And if you go back, I think it was probably about four or five years ago, uh, people fell off their chair when Diageo paid a billion dollars to George Clooney and his and his pals for Casamigos. But five years on, you know, they've done a lot with that brand. And I think very few people will dispute that they've probably made a pretty good return on that investment. But how good are these products? I mean, how much is it, you know, actually it is a great product and a celebrity has added their name to it. And how much is it, it's an okay product that's doing well because it's associated with a celebrity? So the cost of launching a brand with advertising is too high. So startups or new brands to market launch a la Aviation Gin, spend years knocking on doors, walking through bars to get very little volume. And then along comes Ryan Reynolds with 30 million, 50 million Instagram fans, makes a few funny ads and suddenly it's hip and cool and he gets bought for hundreds of millions. He just breaks the algorithm because what what you would have cost you fifty million in ad spend, he can do in a heartbeat because he's already got the audience. So these guys are just breaking the the ad revenue, the ad spend model, and they just they just explode a brand. So it's more about the celebrity giving a great product an extra leg up. Yeah, and that's what The Rock did with Terramana. Terramana is a pretty good tequila for its price point. It's a good tequila. I mean, is it? Is it a boutique luxury tequila? No, but is it good for the money? Sure. And does The Rock have 100 million fans through all these socials? Yeah. So immediately you go from no one knows who you are to like 20, 30, 40 million people know who you are. So if you can combine authentically good products with a celebrity that has influence, you have a a really strong chance of success. What you also get, which people underestimate, is you get the attention of distributors. Because when The Rock does an energy drink or The Rock does Terramana, Southern, RNDC, Johnson Brothers, any of the major spirit guys go, I want to do that. I want that. And suddenly, you're not on 2,000 stores. You're in 20, 30, 40,000 stores. Thank you very much. Now, Alex, I'd like to wrap off this conversation about industry trends with a look at sort of in the future, what is really going to drive growth in 
the spirits segment. And then Matt, I'll come to you and talk to you about what is going to drive growth in the beer segment. Although I think we we established earlier on that there isn't going to be that much growth in the beer segment. But Alex, let's start with you first. Well, I mean, certainly at the moment, it's it's all about agave spirits. So uh, very much tequila to a certain extent, mezcal, that's a little bit smaller right now. Just to put things into a little bit of context, I think tequila is around 15% of the spirits market today by value. But over the last couple of years, it's driven about a third of the growth. Um, I mean, it's just seen as being a little bit cooler, trendier. It has that sort of youthful exuberance. We've just discussed the role of celebrities in, in the category. Um, but I think if you think about it, it's um, you know anything that you can do with vodka, which is which is a big category in the U.S. You can replicate with tequila, but you're just getting a much more flavorsome, a much more complex uh, cocktail or neat drink experience. Uh, and that's probably looking at that just the white tequila. If you think about the the darker, the age, and yeho tequilas, they're probably beginning to encroach on. A very large dark spirits pool, and and has the ability to take market share from there, from things like blended scotch, for example. Thank you very much, Matt. Talk to us about beer. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty clear that the beer traditional beer category is under threat, under duress from a very powerful spirits category. Um, the chances of total beer growth um, are very low. I mean, it, will it eke out moderate growth based on population expansion? Perhaps. Um, will it eke out some premiumization? Absolutely. Um, through Mexican imports, Michelob Ultra, some some pathways to premiumization for sure. So it can it can eke out some revenue growth, but it's unlikely to eke out significant volume growth. The craft the craft renaissance is over, so it won't drive any significant value creation. Um, and the question is for the beer industry collectively, can it reignite a fire amongst Gen Zs? Um, what brands, what actions, what behaviours can reinvent beer and put it back into the 21, the 24-year-old co- cohort? Because right now it's lost that it's lost that generation. And as that generation ages in, it's going to further, further exacerbate its performance. Um, the response from the beer industry is to diversify. Um, each of them have now a stated position of Total Bevalc, Molson Coors reinvented itself as not a brewing company, but a beverage company. Um, Anheuser-Busch has the Beyond Beer segment, which has been aggressively acquiring and driving into spirits, cut water included. Um, so the beer industry, I think, with its scale and its money, will diversify itself to see growth in um, in the spirits sector and everyone will, will exit wine because of its non-performance. Um, but that, yeah, that's how I think it goes. Alex, you make an absolute bang-on point as it relates to tequila and, and vodka. Vodka is the most vulnerable category in the US, and tequila is the new vodka. And I don't think if we look too far into the future, maybe 10, 15 years, tequila will be the largest category of spirits in the US because it is it is, it is, is the on-trend flavor. If vodka is the reductive flavor, i.e. no flavor, tequila is the flavor. Um, so I think we're going to see that. And then off the back of that, you will definitely see Mezcal rise because Mezcal is the early adopters, innovators version of tequila. I mean, we're seeing it undercurrents right now. Um, but I think we've also got to keep our eye on the rum category because this industry never stops the search by bartenders to be ahead of everyone else. 
230,000 bars in America. There's maybe 10,000 of them that set trends. Every one of those bartenders that work in there is trying to get a spirit that you've never heard of to give you a cocktail you've never tried. So this industry will never stop its search for what's next. So while you keep your eye on tequila going mass, mezcal and behind, there will always be one category that's, that's emerging very quietly that will emerge in five years' time as being the next hot thing. So if we think about sort of the winners and losers in the space, I mean, listening to what you guys have said, it sounds like the tequila segment is the winner at the moment. Losers, beer, is it as simple as that? Or is there a bit more nuance to it? I think we kind of, if we look at category shifts, it's pretty clear that spirits is gaining market share from beer. It's gaining market share from wine. If we look within spirits, tequila is, is a clear winner. I'd say dark spirits in aggregate probably continue to gain market share with the exception of of blended scotch for for whatever reason um and vodka is is you know for for decades been the bedrock of us the us spirits industry that's the most vulnerable and that's where the new on trend categories are going to take market share from i agree with that alex i think you're spot on on that point and time will tell who the eventual winners and losers are catherine because the beer industry still has opportunity given its size its power if they can diversify smartly, who knows? Who knows where they can take themselves, right? Um, so I don't want to say that the beer players will be losers, but certainly the beer category, it's hard to see it being a winner in, in, in total terms because it's facing down so many strong headwinds and so many tailwinds exist for the spirits industry. And the spirits players are great. So thanks to both of you. Now, um, a key element of every one of our podcasts is the the one to watch segment where I ask my speakers to tell me about the one to watch in the space. It might be a company, it might be a product, a technology, a development, anything that our listeners should really be keeping an eye on when it comes to the future of that industry. Alex, can you give me your one to watch? I'm going to go with the spirits company, David Campari. Not not just from a, a U.S. perspective, but uh, I guess from a, a global perspective, they've never enjoyed the benefits of scale like a, a Diageo or, or a Perno, and whether that's been an advantage or not to them is is obviously debatable. But it, it's probably made Campari be a little bit more clever around innovation, around marketing, around acquisitions. I think it's you know it's a company that's been very good at spotting trends. It's a company that's been very good at buying tired, dusty old brands, turning them around, creating a new occasion, and rolling them out globally. If you think going back around the Negroni with their Campari brand, if you think Aperol Spritz, and they've been very busy buying up other brands uh, in very niche areas, which um, might be an opportunity for them to, to exploit down the road. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Matt, from your perspective, the one to watch. I'm going to give you one to watch, but it's um, it comes with a caveat that I'm involved in it, so I just have to be um, I have to be upfront. Check out Air Company. It's carbon capture technology that converts carbon to ethanol. It's now it's been verified by the TTB to be able to call itself vodka. Um, so it literally just takes away all the distillation system and it converts carbon from the atmosphere or you know carbon um, into ethanol. I think the other one to watch in the US is is Monster and beer. I don't know, man. Like, those guys are crazy. Um, 
I love the energy that that, a, that an energy drinks company could bring to a beer category that's lost its way with 21 to 24s. If any company knows anything about 21 to 24 year olds, it's an energy drink company. I think their acquisition of Kaneki was simply to get a route to market. I don't think any of the brands they bought were really that next generational. But at some point, someone's going to have to drop something in beer for next generation consumers. And, and it is rife for transformation. So the first company that really cracks the next generation for beer could win a big amount of share. And I got my eye on those guys because they're pretty, they're pretty interesting from, from, their, from their background. Thank you both so, so much. Um, unfortunately, that's all that we've got time for today, but I'd like to once again thank Alex and Matt for sharing all your experiences and insights and all those great companies that you've mentioned throughout the podcast. Thank you also to all of you listening to this episode of The Signal, presented to you by Third Bridge, the world's leading investment research provider. Join us in a fortnight for the next episode. And in the meantime, please rate, review or follow our podcast. Indeed, if you like it, tell a friend. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts from. And obviously also from thirdbridge.com forward slash signal. From me, Catherine Ford, that's goodbye. And until next time. Goodbye.